Last week, I started a sermon series on Celtic Christianity. Uh, and if you missed the start of that, I really would suggest you pick up a handout or a copy of the sermon because we're going to sort of be building on that. Um, but I was trying to argue that, that part of our heritage as Presbyterians is not just Reformed in the Enlightenment, but it's Celtic. That we have this whole side of us that we have largely lost sight of in our history. So I told a little bit of the story of the Celts, that they were at one time all across Europe, but had been pushed over time to where really they were left in the British Isles, where we, we kind of think of Celts, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. And what's so interesting about the Celts is when they became Christians, thanks to missionaries like the one you probably all heard of, St. Patrick, uh, they became authentically Celtic Christians. In other words, they kept a lot of their Celticness and uh, made it into a Christian expression of what it meant to be Celtic. And so it's kind of fascinating, and I've been learning a lot and sort of thinking about it, and I think it has a lot to add in our summer of talking, or our year of talking about experiencing God. So, so this is sort of a Celtic summer. So if you notice, the liturgy may have felt a little different than it, it sometimes does. It's because we're using some Celtic liturgy, and we're trying to think through some of those things. So again, handouts in the back table. Also for today, in your bulletin, there's a little page that says Sermon Scribbles, and there's a couple pictures in there that you may want to have handy. I'm going to make reference to that a couple times uh, during the sermon. Here's a few things I, I just need to highlight as we're talking about Celtic thinking today. Important things to know about the Celts. One is that they were very tribal. Okay, that was part of the problem with the Celts. They were probably better warriors than the Romans and a lot of the other peoples, but they were so tribal. They loved their family units. They loved their small tribes. But when they went to battle, they wouldn't battle with, they, they wouldn't work with other tribes very well. And so it was, it was easier for a group like the Romans that trained their soldiers to work together to push the Celts around. But they were very tribal, very into community and connectedness of their families with other families. They believed in the divine world, that there was a spiritual world that was, was sort of near the natural world. It was all around us. In fact, it was so close that they used to say it was like just a couple of feet, maybe three feet, was dividing between the natural world and the spiritual world. And so, so all around us, they believed in gods and spirits that were in nature in all of these places. What's so fascinating is they had this concept called thin spaces or thin places. So there's this gap between the spiritual world and the physical world, but sometimes the gap is smaller. And sometimes it's not that the thin spaces are weak or, uh, or frail, it's that the gap between the spiritual and the natural were like smaller there. You, you've probably experienced this, right? You ever go to a place that's just beautiful? And suddenly, or, or you go to a, a historic church or something from your childhood that brings you back to kind of a deep spiritual place. There are these places in life, or maybe experiences, the birth of a grandchild, right? Where, where, where suddenly you're, you feel close to God in a different, it's like God's a little closer there. They had this sense. And the Celts also believed in pilgrimages. So if there were places where you could go to be closer to the divine, well, you went there. 
So they would go and they would have special places and they would mark them with, with symbols. And, and they almost thought like these were portals between the divine and the natural world. So uh, the spirits could come and go. He'd be among us and then leave. And if you went to one of these portals, you could be closer to the gods. Now, when, when missionaries started to come to the, to the Celts, they rightly thought these are some kind of weird beliefs. Right? If you weren't going to convert these people to Christianity... Well, then we, we can't have all this stuff about portals to the divine and lots of gods. We've got to correct some of these things. And, uh, and, and so missionaries like St. Patrick, like Columba in the 4th and 5th centuries uh, would come in and try to teach people about God. Now, now, what's also interesting about this is in the 4th and 5th century, the church had just sort of worked out a lot of their views of God. Okay, It's not really until Constantine in the 300s that the church really starts putting together what they mean and it, it, by talking about God, because it was confusing. Okay, if if you ever find yourself confused by something like the Trinity, you're probably on the right track because it is kind of confusing. There were two main questions the church had to wrestle with. One was the nature of Jesus: was he God? Was he human? Was he sometimes one or the other? Was he a little bit of both? How do we understand Jesus? And then the church had to really understand uh, how do we understand the Trinity. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but how does that all work? And all this debate is worked out in the 200s and the 300s. So when Patrick comes to, to teach the, the Celts, it's fresh on everybody's mind that they want to get this right. So let, let's take a look at a couple of these discussions then. What about the question of the divinity of Jesus? Well, sometimes Jesus seems very divine. Okay, He walks on water calms storms, raises people from the dead. Sometimes he also seems very human, right? He eats, he gets mad, he gets tired, he sleeps on a boat. Okay, Sometimes Jesus seems very human, and sometimes Jesus seems very divine. Sometimes he does amazing things, and sometimes he just seems like a guy. So some, would, some had argued in the earlier church that maybe he was just a man through whom God had done great things. After all, that was Moses, that was David, that was lots of characters. Others had argued that he was part God and part human, like a little bit of oil and water in there, and it sort of mixed around. He could do some God things and some human things. Or he had two parts, and he was sometimes more the God part and sometimes the human part. Some argued that he was created by God. Others tried to say, no, he's always existed, and he just became flesh. And in the end, what the church decided was, for us to make sense of all the testimony of Scripture, he had to be fully God and fully human. He couldn't be part one or the other. He had to be both, and he had to be both all the time. He had to be fully divine to raise from the dead, but he had to be fully human for his death to mean something to us. That means he's 100% human, 100% divine. That's what the church settled on. Now, if you're a math major... This is not like, this is not great. 100% of both, that's 200%. That is way too much Jesus. Okay? But that is what the church settled on. It was a paradox. It was a paradox. It was a mystery. And somehow they needed to have both. Now, interesting way of expressing this. In early Christian art, Jesus also is portrayed with dual natures. I gave you in your, in your sermon scribbles a picture of Jesus. Look really closely at the face of Jesus. What you'll find is one side of his face is very symmetrical 
Okay, I can't remember on yours. From yours perspective, it's like the left side, right? Very symmetrical. Eyebrow is where it's supposed to be and straight. Very beautiful face. But on the other side of the face, it droops a little bit. Almost looks like Jesus had a stroke. Okay, his face droops a little bit. Eyebrows a little off. Eyes a little awkward. Okay, but this often happens in early Christian art. Not because they're trying to say Jesus was half and half, but they wanted when you looked at an icon of Jesus or a picture of Jesus, you to remember the two natures, that He's fully God and fully human. Isn't that a neat way to sort of see that? And that, that is it a paradox? Yeah, it's a little confusing. Yeah, but that's the only way they could make sense of everything they knew about Jesus. In some ways, that debate, uh, as we got to the rest of, uh, of... Sorry, pause. John 1 makes it very clear that Jesus was with God from the beginning. And that He was always God. Um, Paul is pretty clear about this too. And so, so we have to have Jesus be both. But what do you do then with the rest of the Godhead? Okay, there are some times where it seems like God is three different uh, beings. Here is the classic example. In the baptism of Jesus, I'm going to read just a piece from Matthew 3. It says, And when Jesus baptized, was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up to Him. And He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So isn't this a little tricky, right? All of a sudden in this story, we have Jesus is in the water. We have clearly the Spirit descending. It's not a dove. Descending like a dove. Okay, It's kind of this mystical understanding of the Spirit coming down. And then you have this voice from heaven calling Jesus the beloved Son. So we have Jesus' water, Father in the, in the heavens, the Spirit coming down. So some pointed a text like this and said, see, what we really have is three gods, tritheism. We really have one up there and one Spirit and one Jesus. And so they're all three, so there must be three gods. Others said maybe, maybe there's one God, but, it, but it's sort of like a mixture, right? It's kind of all three. Other people believed in what we call modalism, which is where God switches roles. Like there's one God, and sometimes He's over here and He's the Father, and then He pops in as the Spirit real quick, and then He's the Son over here. Like Jesus could switch modes. He could switch roles. But there were too many Scriptures that made this totally untenable. For instance, in John 14, Jesus said, "Ah, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Whoa, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Uh, John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. So, so the church actually pretty quickly said, okay, God the Father and Jesus, they are both God somehow. We, we got that. But what do we do with the Spirit? Actually, the Scriptures don't lay that out as clearly. But, but we do get Jesus in Matthew 28 telling the disciples of the Great Commission to baptize in the what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul blesses the church at Corinth at the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so the church started to figure out, okay, now wait a minute, the Spirit gets listed with the Father and the Son. So here's what the church settled on. That we have to believe in one God. There's not multiple gods. There is only one God. 
But clearly, we also have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the church said, well, how do we name that? Well, here's what they named it. They said persons. We have to have three persons, three specific sort of beings that are having roles in the Trinity. And at the same time, we can only have one God. And so here's the word they use, substance. They are all one substance, three people, three, three persons. Okay, is that confusing? Yeah, it's confusing, everybody. It took them like 300 years to figure this out. Okay, if, you've, if you're confused by this, welcome to the club. Okay, we're talking about God who is so not us. He doesn't fit in our categories and our language. But the church decided, no, we, we've got to actually hold to something here in the scriptures. And, and it's a paradox and it's a mix. And we've got to somehow figure that out. So how do these, how do these persons all stay one substance? Well, they use this really neat Greek word, perichoresis. It's actually a dance. It's a term for dancing. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they dance together. And they dance so well together that they're one substance. They're, they're one and yet they're three persons. If you're confused by that, it's okay. We're all confused by that. Now why is this important for to understand the Celtics? Well, remember, this, the 300s, the church is working all this out. And in the 4 and 500s, the missionaries are coming to the Celts. Okay, And they're, all, they're not only understanding that the Celts have these weird views, but they're also understanding we have figured out our language for how we're going to talk about God. And so those missionaries were very serious about teaching the dual nature of Jesus and the Trinity to the Celtic people. In fact, one of the only things you probably know about St. Patrick is that he used a, a, a shamrock, a three-leaf clover, to teach the Trinity. It's one of the classics. If you look on your bulletin, if you see a picture of, of St. Patrick, he almost always is either holding three-leaf clover or he's got one like pinned on, like, uh, like in his outfit somewhere. Okay, because it's one thing we all kind of hang on to. Now, now that you know the Trinity, you also know it's not the best metaphor, right? It doesn't totally do justice to the metaphor. But what it shows is that Patrick is still known to this day for trying to help these people understand the Trinity way back then. Now, while the Romans struggled with the paradox of the Trinity, and, and we all do too, because we're sort of very logical and we want it to sort of work out. What's interesting about the Celts is they loved it. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, the dual nature of Jesus, that clicked with the Celts immediately. In fact, it was like more simple. You mean there's not a whole bunch of gods and spirits everywhere that we have to go to special places to meet? You mean there's just one? Right? And right away, these Celtic people that were so tribal, so into community. You mean to tell me we got three persons, but they're dancing together. They're such a tight community that they're one essence. Oh, well, that makes sense. It's like the Celts immediately got the Trinity. It actually sort of simplified it for them. And, and it wasn't just dry doctrine for them. They, they understood it as, as, as an explanation of how they understood the divine. I mean, if you think about it, don't you experience God a lot like Trinity? Sometimes God seems to be out there with a plan and a purpose overseeing, right? I want a God up there watching out for me. Like sometimes I experience God really as Father. But sometimes, sometimes I see God represented in this world. That's exactly what Jesus does. 
I need a figure of Jesus who died on the cross, who taught me how to be the ultimate human, who, who showed me what life should be like. Like I needed Jesus and I experienced Jesus in so many ways. And then isn't it funny that sometimes God's like with me? In like sometimes, oh man, sometimes I got a conscience. Sometimes I've got an intuition. You ever had the Holy Spirit tell you, oh, that person, stay away from that person, that's dangerous. Or you ever had the Holy Spirit say to you, oh, hey, you get this little intuition, this little inkling where you're like, hey, this is an opportunity I need to pay attention to. And so for the, for the, uh, for the Celts, they, they instantly got on board with this trinity because that's kind of how we all experience God. It's not a bad way of understanding experiencing God in these sort of different ways. The Father knowing what's going on. The Son being our example and our Savior. The Spirit prompting us, leading us, calming us in this world. And what I also find so interesting about the Celts is that they decided to keep their idea of thin spaces. They decided to keep this idea of thin spaces, but they did a few things with it to make it biblically accurate. Number one, thin spaces are the places where the gap between divinity and humanity are gone, right? They're, they're so tight, the natural world and the spiritual world. Here's what they started to say. You know what the ultimate thin space is? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate thin space. I mean, in Jesus, there's no gap between humanity and divinity, the spiritual world and the natural world. He's fully God, fully human. They got on board with the divinity and humanity of Jesus right away because he's a thin space. There's no space. And so if I want to understand God, where do I go to first? What's the primary, central way that I can understand God in this world? Well, the thinnest space there is is Jesus. And so they got this real good understanding of Jesus as this doorway, this bridge to God. And they also got this sense of, of pilgrimage, that life is about trying to experience God. And, and you know what's interesting about Jesus is He's a fellow pilgrim. Okay, He came to earth. They got on board with that real quick too. Man, Jesus is a fellow pilgrim. He has gone through this world, tempted in every way that I am. And so if I want to understand the divine, man, not only is Jesus the thin space, but He's a fellow pilgrim that can show me the way. And I also got this sense that in some ways, if the Holy Spirit is in me, then I'm a thin space. I'm a thin. The, the gap between humanity and divinity, well, that's being worked out in me as the Holy Spirit is within me. And so I don't have to go on a pilgrimage. Some of my biggest pilgrimages are going to be inside of myself. And so the Celts had this real understanding of if I want to understand God, sometimes i got to understand me. But sometimes I'm in the way of what I can understand about God. And sometimes how we experience God is the thin places that we all are. That you're a thin space. And sometimes I experience God through my friends, through my family, through someone who speaks to me, that we're all thin spaces. Part of how we experience God is with each other. So Jesus was a thin space, and we are thin spaces. But they also kept this idea that maybe there really are still places where it's a little easier to be close to God. Don't you all have those? Do you have a thin space? Do you have the place you can go when you want to be close to God? Do you have those places in nature? Beautiful churches. For some, you go back to camp. For some, you go to locations with great memories, to the Holy Land. Or special experiences like the birth of a child. 
a deep conversation with a friend, a loving hug from a grandchild. There's something wonderfully special about some of these little moments, these thin spaces that happen in our lives. It's amazing this week the book sale was kind of a thin space. And if you were part of the book sale, you sort of felt it. It was, it was kind of cool. It was like all this work we did, and then people started showing up, and it was special. And, and I mean, just I don't know how many thousand people came through from our community and got to experience our church. And, and, and we had a ton of fun joking around with each other through the whole thing. It was, it was a special thin space. And it was clear after day one that God was up to something through it. There are these thin spaces in our lives. It was a thin time. But the, the Celts got their theology right. What made those special thin places special wasn't some magical portal to the... It's what they brought. Okay? It's like Moses. Take off, the sh- take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. But if God is always with us, then we're always on holy ground. But sometimes Moses has to take his shoes off and sometimes it's just holy ground because that's where he is and that's what God's up to. Okay? There are thin spaces, holy ground all around us. What makes them holy isn't that they're magic and special. Some of what makes a thin space a thin space is your heart and your mind going into them. Is you being open to, oh, this is special. Oh, God is here. God is in our midst. The expectation of looking for God in my life, looking for God in conversations, looking for God in other people. This is why I want to talk about the Celts in this year where we're talking about experiencing God because the Celts got this in a different kind of way. They wanted to experience God. And so we have our Reformed tradition and our Enlightenment tradition. We like to think about God. The Celts wanted to experience God. And for them, the Trinity was part of how they did that. And the dual nature of Jesus was part of how they did that. It wasn't dry theology. It was part of the pathway. It was part of the pilgrimage to experiencing God in their life. So my question for you today is, what are your thin spaces? What are the experiences, relationships, physical spaces, spiritual practices, opportunities to serve? What are before you? The opportunities for the triune God to meet you and work through you. Where is the Trinity dancing in your life? Because I believe it's all over. I believe it is all over. And the key isn't a grand effort to go to some holy site or to create some super special holy experience. Here's the key. Ready? Are you ready? Is your heart and mind ready for God to show up? To actually believe that God's going to be in these places, conversations, relationships? Are you ready to focus on Jesus as the ultimate thin space? And, and, and to understand that the practices we go through are part of how we practice. We go to communion table. Why? Not just to have communion, but so that when we commune with God and other people in the rest of the week, we practiced. This is practice, everybody. For the game. Part of what we do is we come apart, so we train ourselves to see God in the thin spaces all over the place. That's, that's what we're creating here. A thin space to practice so we can see the thin spaces out there. 